passage this, this morning is uh, chapter 6, verses 2 through 4, but I'm going to start in verse 1. I love that sound. The flips of the... I, I was reflecting this week on what a privilege it is that most people own a Bible here. Wow. Millennia of Christians longed for that sort of privilege, and this is something I think I take for granted. So praise God that we get to hear the flips of the paper. Um, okay, so uh, read with me from verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay, this passage starts out with the words, when you give to the needy. When you give to the needy. Now, The implication there is that you will give. And I could be wrong, but I don't think this struck anyone in the audience as a a paradigm shift. And the reason I say that is uh, generosity towards the poor is a basic expectation in the entire Bible. Okay, From, From the beginning to the end, the Bible is clear that if you want to be like God, if you want to do the right thing, if you want to be righteous in the sense that we talked about last time, this little r righteousness, doing the right thing for the right reason, if you want to do the right thing, you will give to the needy. It is what the Bible says to do. And I'm going to prove that to you by just surveying uh, a handful of passages. Now, I am... Uh, choosy here. I, I'm just going to read you six, I think, passages uh, from throughout the Bible, from, from the, the law and the writings and the prophets and the gospels and the letters throughout the Bible. The expectation is clear that God's people will be generous and they will be generous, especially to those in need. All right, let's get started. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 7. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within the land that your Lord, the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be any unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cry to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. 
Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Okay, crystal clear expectation that if you see your brother in need, you will give him what he needs. Okay, now I want to give you some context here because there's a little bit of reference to some of, uh, some of the law's expectations and some of the law's calendar. He says, uh, take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say the seventh year, the year of release is near. What this is referring to is every seven years, the people of Israel forgot the debt burden of their brothers and sisters. Okay? Which is to say that if you had loaned uh, uh, your neighbor a hundred bucks uh, and, and it just happened to be two months before the seventh year, one of the ways that the people of Israel celebrated the grace and mercy of God was to forget the debts of others. Why? Because God forgot their debts in the atoning work. Okay, so, so what this refers to is don't you hesitate to give your brother all that he needs, even if you know that that debt is going to be um, released shortly. So this is not just a call to lend. This is a call to lend and give generously, knowing you might not receive anything back. And then what's the major incentive here? There are two. On the negative side, the incentive is, if that poor brother calls out to me in his distress and I I will hear him and I will see the guilt in you. All right? So it's not merely like go above and beyond people of Israel by giving. It's if you see a brother in need and you do not give to him, you will be guilty and he will cry out and I will hear him and, and you, will, you will find my wrath in that moment. Okay? And then there's this really lovely positive incentive, which is for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. So there's this beautiful sort of like situation where you people have been given the grace and mercy of God and have been set in a new land and God has given you everything you need for life and for flourishing. And so you, when you see a brother poor, just like you were poor, just like you were suffering in Egypt, you remember the mighty work of God to, to relieve that burden from your shoulders and to escort you while Bread and water fell from the sky, right? Or, or was sprung from the rock, right? God has provided for you every step of the way through the wilderness into this promised land. You go and do likewise. Make sense? Right, basic. This is basic expectation. And we're not even through the fifth book of the Bible. All right, let's skip ahead a little bit. Let's look at Proverbs. Verse nine, or chapter 19, verse 17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends, listen, to the Lord. Lends to the Lord and He will repay him for his deed. He who is generous to the poor is like somebody lending to the Lord. There is no one more trustworthy to repay a debt than the Lord. And that's what you're supposed to see here. God will repay the generosity issued towards the poor as if you were lending to Him. You can't lend to God. Everything belongs to Him. Everything belongs to Him. 
But when you are generous to the poor, it is like you are lending to the Lord, and He will repay that good work. Okay. Proverbs 21. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered. In a similar way as Deuteronomy, we see this positive and this negative incentive. The positive incentive is you are generous to the poor and and the Lord will reward you. The negative incentive is if you hear the cries of the poor and you ignore them, when you are in this state of desperation and you cry out to God, your cries will not be heard. And that is terrifying. And it should be terrifying. All right, let's skip ahead. Isaiah. Isaiah. I want to read this together. Turn to Isaiah 58. This is beautiful. Isaiah 58. It is on page... Six hundred eighteen. Let's start in verse six. I had chosen just a single verse from this paragraph, and Brett was like, "Dude, read the whole thing," <laughs> and he's right too. All right, uh, verse six. Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness? to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer and you shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as noonday. Amen. God is calling His people to reflect the mercy and the grace and the generosity that He has poured out on them. Okay, let's keep moving. Turn to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. I'm going to read 32. Luke chapter 12, verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Mm. Sell your stuff. Give it to the needy. And that is an investment in the kingdom. We're starting to see the curtains peel back, right? 
What does he mean when he says, I will repay that debt as if you lent it to me? What does it mean that he, that he says uh, in, in Deuteronomy, uh, the Lord will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake? What, what does that mean? Well, Jesus just said, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The kingdom. And when you sell your stuff and you give to those in need, you're laying your treasure in that kingdom. Okay, let's read one more. 1 John 3, verse 16. 1 John 3, verse 16. I'll tell you the page number if you give me a moment. One thousand twenty-two. I'm sorry, not twenty-two. I don't know where I got that. Sixteen. First John three sixteen. Okay, by this we know love, that he, that is Jesus, laid down his life for us. And that's it. That's all it says. It's nice, right? Makes you feel good. Close your Bible. Don't worry about anything else. No. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Amen. So the counsel of the entire Bible is that God's people give generously. Why do they give generously? Well, that they are who they are and they have the hope that they have because God gave generously to them and because God has said, if you choose to turn your ear from the cry of the oppressed, it will go bad for you in a big way. When you cry out, you will not be heard. And because God says, and if you hear the cry of the oppressed, and you serve them in their desperation, and you pull that yoke from their shoulders, and you bear that burden along with them, selling your possessions and giving to the needy, you will receive the kingdom. All right? that, that's the biblical testimony about giving to those in need. So that's the subtext to when you give. When you give. Okay, we'll talk more about that later. All right. So when you give, the Bible is clear, you ought to give. But Christ goes on to explain the situation of giving that you find yourself in or that you place yourself in. And it teaches us that why you give matters. Why you give matters. Let's, uh, let's read it one more time. I'm all mixed up. 
When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. That they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. It is not enough, I think, according to Jesus, I think this is what Jesus means, it is not enough merely to give. If you find yourself generous, don't just check the box. You need to explore the situation of your generosity. Because you can be generous for the wrong reason. Let me just take a step back, and I want to highlight something. I'm just going to keep on harping on this. Um, because I think it's, it's, it's sort of the subtext of this entire chapter, and I think it's the subtext of, of much of the Lord's sermon. When you do things, you're seeking things, right? People are in the business of seeking. And often you will find what you seek, all right? So, here's what I mean. You go to a restaurant to find not just food, but comfort and fellowship, right? So that you would have joy and peace, all right? There's, you, you leave your house at 6 in the morning or 7 in the morning so that you Go to work on time so that your job can be done well and your supervisor would be pleased so that you can provide for your family and and so that you can enjoy the respect and uh, honor of men or so that you can uh, grow towards your career ambitions. There there are reasons you do what you do. Why, why do you get up and do, drive your kids to school? Because you want them to flourish. You want to grow old and watch them equipped to do the work of living in a, in a, in a, in a, in a healthy and mature manner. You do what you do for reasons. And what Jesus is saying here is that at you, when you do the right thing, Right? He says, when you do your righteousness, if you remember, your righteousness refers not to some situational uh, category whereby you stand before God and he says you are spotless and clean. That term, your righteousness, refers to doing the right thing in situations for the right reason. So he's, he's saying when you do the right thing, make sure it doesn't look like this because that would mean that you are seeking the wrong thing, all right? So you can actually give generously to the poor in a wicked way, all right? Does that make sense? And what, and the situation that Jesus is pointing to here, which we'll get into in in a moment, is the situation of somebody whose giving is very visible. And that visible giving is highlighting an invisible longing, okay? Visible giving 
highlights an invisible desire. What is that desire? The praise of men. We desire the praise of men. This looks uh, different for each of us, I think. Uh, For some of us, we don't want to make people upset. We use the term fear of man a lot. Um, Jesus seems to have a recognition of what the fear of man looks like, but he puts it in the same category. Because when he refers to those who don't do things because they don't want people to, 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 uh, to... to uh, disrespect them, he says, because they desired the glory of man instead of or more than the glory of God. Okay, so in either case, you're seeking praise or glory from men. And this looks like either publicly doing the right thing so that people recognize it or putting yourself in a situation where you do the right thing and and it just so happens that people you want to impress are there or it looks like not doing certain things because you don't want people to disapprove of you all right in either case you're seeking praise i think jesus is highlighting that when you're giving generously to the poor in a way that other people can see it's it's pointing your attention to your heart's idol, right? There are some things that loom in the dark corner of our hearts and we can't see them. We're blind to them. But Jesus is really good at pointing at outward behaviors that highlight inward sin, secret sin. And this is one of them. And it's not just one of them. This is one of the more audacious of them. Listen to what he says. He says, Sound no trumpet before you. What, is that? what does that mean? Did people back then walk around with trumpets? Right? There's actually a commentary or two that was like, maybe this refers to actual trumpets, or maybe it's speaking hyperbolically. I don't think that's what's going on. Um, when, uh, when the people of Israel were gathered to worship God at the synagogue, it was, it was done with trumpets. Or, 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 you know, probably not, not like a copper thing like we think of, but, you know, there would be a, a trumpet sound, and that's how you knew, okay, it's time to go praise God. It's time to go reflect on God's mercy and grace in His Word, and it's time to praise Him together and to pray to Him. All right, so, so this notion of sounding the trumpets is a notion of rallying the praise of men. And it really places some gravity on what's happening here with this public giving. It says, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and the streets. So you look and you're thinking, oh, I've seen people, I've seen people, or maybe I am that guy who has gone to the synagogue and made a big show of giving to somebody who was in need. Or, or maybe there's a guy begging in the street and I make a big show so that other people can see that I'm giving to this person. And it's not in secret. It's very public because I want people to see. And he says, that's sounding the trumpets. You're sounding the trumpets. Except you're not sounding the trumpets to gather the praise of God, to assemble the people to praise God. You're gathering the trumpets to, to assemble people to praise you.
the, the reason that's a problem is because the praise of men will only terminate on one object. You put yourself before them as that object. You are stealing God's glory. You are stealing praise from God when you put yourself as the object of the affection and respect and honor of men. Self-promotion comes at the expense of God-promotion. Let that be a rule for you. Self-promotion comes at the expense of God-promotion. We don't boast. We don't. We don't talk about how great we are. We talk about how frail we are. And when we talk about the good things that have happened in our lives, we talk about them as an avenue to reflect on God's grace and mercy despite us. Because we don't want to steal praise from the God who actually did it. So if you find yourself self-promotional, find yourself thinking and talking often about all the good things you've done, or said, or thought, or wrote, there's a reward for that, but it's not, it's not one you want. Okay. So, Jesus says, don't, don't do that. Don't seek the praise of men. Don't sound the trumpets. Don't rally men to, to recognize your generosity. That's, that's not the right way. They, they have received their reward. They were looking for the praise of men, and they've received it. But at the expense of God's praise... And I don't know if you've read to the end, but if you've read to the end, working against God goes bad for you. So don't go that way. But instead, when you give to the needy, don't let your, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Now, physiologically, this is actually impossible. Um, there are not a whole lot of people who can do something with one hand and, and, and not know about... Actually, I mean, if you want to get technical, I don't think your hands know anything. But you get the idea, right? Your giving should be secret and self-forgetful. You should be so frequently generous to the poor that you can't really remember... Uh, who you gave to or what, and it should be so secret that other people didn't even know it happened in the first place. Why? Why is Christian giving secret giving? Christian giving is secret giving. Why? I, I'm going to try and answer that question. First, Christians aren't terribly optimistic about their own motives. Right? Christians aren't terribly optimistic about their own motives. Now, there's a few things we believe. If, if, if you're a, a Christian running in the same circles as, as we do, you probably believe these same things. You may state them in different ways. But one, 
Before Christ, we were lost and we were broken and we were rebels against the only good king. Right? That's, that's one thing. Were. Past tense. Right? Second thing is, that good king laid down his life so that our rebel hearts could be changed. And so that instead of wearing all that guilt, we would wear Christ's righteousness so that as soon as we are in Christ, situationally, categorically, we are righteous in Him. We are born again. We stand clean before God because of the work of Christ. So that we can even, oh, the audacity of the thought, walk before God's throne and ask Him for things. Why? Because we wear the righteousness of Christ. We are clean before Him. Okay? Now, that's the second thing. The third thing is, there's this saved, being saved, will be saved dynamic in the Scriptures. What that means is saved, Christ has bought us and cleansed us and we stand righteous before God. Being saved, the Spirit is working in our hearts to transform us and to renew us and to, and to make us ready for the, for the, for the uh, wedding supper of the Lamb. And then we'll be saved when Christ returns. We will stand before Him spotless. Right? We're right there in the middle. We are right there in the middle of the being saved. Which means that the Spirit's work in our hearts looks an awful lot like waking up in the morning and, and snapping at your spouse or snapping at your child or snapping at your coworker, and then seeing, oh, there's sin in my heart. I, I want that to go away. Spirit, Lord, God, please save me. And change me and, and renew my strength and restore my hope and, and, and restore to me the joy of my salvation and, 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 and uh, I, I, I confess my anger, my harshness, I confess my, my, my ambition uh, or whatever. And I want you to make me clean. Right? So there's a state that we're in from the moment we're bought by the blood of Christ until the moment Christ returns where we, were, we are being made new, we are being made clean in a way that is uh, uh, progressive. <laughs> clean not in the sense that we stand on the next day more uh, uh, recipients of grace than on the last day, but clean in the sense that we, we have less and less sin residing in our hearts every day that we walk uh, toward, toward glory. All right, now, if you embrace that dynamic, you recognize that the Spirit is working in you and He's changing you, uh, then you know that there's a lot going on here that, that, that needs work. <laughs> right? You're finding yourself in situations where you look back on who you were six months ago or a year ago or two years ago and it's embarrassing. Right? Because there were motives there. 
There were motives there. There's this uh, really interesting dynamic in Paul. He talks about his own sin. And at the, the, one of the last letters he wrote, he calls himself the chief of sinners. Right? And, you know, we don't know if that was just something uh, he referenced at the end of his life because, uh, be, because it was, it was uh, helpful in his drafting of that letter and encouraging that brother, or if he just every day it dawned on him how much more he needed Jesus. But I tend to think that he's always in the, in the step-by-step recognizing his desperate dependency on Christ and it leads him at the end of his life to say, nobody needs Jesus more than me. Nobody. That's who we are. That's who we are. We are recipients of grace unimaginable. Past tense, present tense, and future tense. So that every morning the mercy of God is new for us. And every morning we stand before Him and we say, please help. I want to get, I want to get better here. I don't, I don't want to be in this place any longer. I'm seeing something that's driving these actions and it's not good. And I want you to cleanse me from this unrighteousness. Alright, so we're not terribly, terribly optimistic about our own motives because we've been walking with Christ And the Spirit has been showing us that our hearts are idol makers. (laughs) Our hearts hearts are, are, um, there's still sin in there. So that's one reason we give in secret. Because when you know your heart craves the praise of men, in a lot of ways you actively avoid situations that rally the praise of men. Right? Right? And that doesn't mean that like, you don't serve in church or you don't teach in, in Sunday school or you don't serve and dig because you, you know your heart wants people to see that you're, that you're respectable and honorable and you're doing good things. And so I'm just not going to do that. I'm not just going to... I'm just going to... I'm going to be uh, uh, away from all settings. Like, no, you're, you're actually called to do the right thing in some ways that, where it's impossible to avoid. Uh, the attention of men. But when possible, we do avoid it. Because we know our hearts. We do the right thing. And the right thing is impressive. So when we do the right thing, the impressive thing, we do it in secret. Because we're in the business of crushing the idols in our hearts. And because given the choice between the praise of men and the praise of God, we're going to go for the praise of God every time. Amen? Amen. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Given the choice on the days where we are faithful, on the days where our eyes see with hope the coming kingdom, Who trades that glory for that glory? Nobody. Nobody. Okay. Now I want to draw near to this sentence, this last sentence in this paragraph. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now there's something really cool going on in this 
in this passage linguistically. Um, Your Father. Chapter 6. This chapter that talks about your personal discipleship. Your personal acts of discipleship and giving and prayer and fasting. This chapter is unique. Let me tell you why. In English, we have only one you. Uh, And it's confusing. So we find ways around it. Uh, So there's you, which is singular, right? It's a singular word, which which means uh, if, if I didn't know Dale, and Dale was crossing the street, and there was a car coming, and he couldn't see it, I would say, hey, you! And I'd be referring to a single individual. Um, okay, now that's uncommon, uh, especially uh, in the ancient languages that we deal with. There's more than one you. There's, there's you for a single person, and then there's you for a group. And we've actually accommodated here by saying y'all in Texas. Y'all. Or where I come from, you say, you guys. You guys, which is probably like there's so many gender conversations going on right now, and it's probably really offensive to say you guys anymore. That's fine. I don't really care about that. But um, uh, you guys uh, or y'all is a way to say you, but for lots of people or for several people. In Greek, there's a word for you when you're speaking to a group. And there's a word for you when you're speaking to just one person. Um, Almost every single time when Jesus says, your father, he's speaking to you. Your father. The father of you all. The father of y'all. But in chapter 6, when he's talking about the father who sees in secret, he says, your father. You. You alone. You, you individually. He's your father. And he sees your works. Your individual works. The ones that nobody else sees because they're in secret. He sees your works. And he's your father. And he will reward you. Okay. He sees you not in some generic universal sense, but in a very personal, very particular sense. <laughs> I, I really hope that overwhelms you. It's beautiful. He knows you. He knows you. And he sees your secret works. And he's ready to reward your secret faithfulness. There are moments in the scriptures that reflect on God's relationship to his people. And then there are moments in the scriptures that reflect on God's relationship to to his individual sons and daughters. This is one of those moments. He's your father. And your father sees Your Father sees and your Father rewards. That's where this passage lands. Your Father is a Father who sees. There's this really lovely passage in Genesis 
um, in a moment of faithlessness. Sarah, who doesn't really believe that God is capable of doing what he said he's done in that moment, says, I have a servant. Take her as a wife. Take her as a wife, and, 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 and I'll claim her child as my child, and, and he can be your descendant. And that happens. And then as soon as she has the promised child, um, she sends that servant away into the wilderness where people die. And this slave woman in the wilderness is dying. And she hears her son dying. And so she places him far enough away that she can't really hear his dying because she's desperately afraid. And she's terribly sad. And then the Lord finds her and he rescues her and he rescues him. And then she praises him as the God who sees. The God who sees in the wilderness. The God who sees what nobody else is seeing. That's our Father. Our Father sees when nobody else cares to see. He sees you when nobody else sees. He sees when you choose what's right. Even when there's no perk and no fame and no honor and no thanks. He sees you when you're pouring yourself out on your children. When you're, when you're given the last few dollars in your checking account. He sees you. He sees that. He's called you to follow him in the secret ways. And in the ways that if you do it right, nobody will see. But he sees. That's who he is. And he rewards every secret gift. Every secret act of generosity is an investment in God's sweet pleasure. I'm going to take a step back for a moment. I've been talking a lot about reward. Um, we do things for the reward. I, I, I wholeheartedly believe that we work for the reward of God. And, and I want to clarify something here. There's been, I think, a, a, a broad misuse of some pictures that we have in the Scripture. Pictures of cities of gold. Pictures of, of mansions. Pictures of plenty and feasting. And I think in bad cultural moments, in bad theological moments, what we do is we terminate our expectation of reward on those pictures. But let me tell you, in the same way that when you feast now, and it's a particularly good meal that you love, and it stirs your heart to think, wow, we, we serve a God who makes flavors like this. The wedding supper, the food at the, 
at the wedding supper itself will also just be a taste of God's glory and beauty and goodness and affection. So don't get me wrong. When I say you work for the reward, I'm not thinking a big mansion. I'm not thinking a, a city of gold. I'm, not think, I'm thinking of God's smile and His attention and affection and the dance that we've been invited to, the dance of God's love and His redemptive work to include His people and His display of His glory and beauty. Okay, so... Every secret act of generosity is an investment in that pleasure. God's pleasure. We were created to find our joy in the joy of our Creator. It was always meant to be a dance. I'm stealing that from C.S. Lewis, by the way. The dance. Beautiful. Um, God's Trinitarian love. Before all creation, right? Father and Son and Spirit. Adoring and loving. And in that love, creating. And in that love, inviting a people redeemed. Right? The beloved image bearers spinning and laughing and leaping in the pleasure of the Creator's joy. He sings over us when we dance with Him. Sin's shame stole that dance. Sin's shame stole that dance. And we forgot the rhythm and the song and the joy of our Father's sweet pleasure when sin stole our hearts. But Jesus came to undo the shame of sin and to train our hearts to long for the melody of God's song and to prepare for the dance for which we were always created. So when, when Christ purchases His people and washes them clean, all, this, all of a sudden that song our hearts were originally trained to hope in, it's heard in whispers. And, and from that moment until Christ returns, we are preparing for the dance of God's pleasure and joy. When we stand before our God, bought by the blood of His Son, clothed with His righteousness and adorned with the secret works He's prepared for us. In that moment, hearing, well done, my good and faithful servant, we'll feel His pleasure and dance in His joy because all that was wrong has been undone. Amen. That's the reward of the Father who sees. Every secret gift is an investment in God's sweet pleasure. And the redeemed will lay those secret works at His feet for the stunning and eternal reward of His good pleasure. The honor of the world, the, the, the flighty and superficial praise of men has nothing on the glory of our God. Amen? Amen. Okay. I think that's what this passage is saying. I'll give you a few more thoughts and some advice. First, uh, give generously. Give generously. It is the testimony of the entire Scriptures. It is your call 
as a recipient of lavish grace to give generously. So do it. Yes, you should be mindful of your motives. And no, you shouldn't be leveraging open public opportunities to rally the praise of men. But, step one, be generous. Be generous. Okay. Two, sometimes giving money, giving money is the right thing to do. I think you should make a place for that in your generosity. Let me give you some context here. Um, the, the language in this passage and um, in many of these passages in Matthew is something that for, for, for centuries uh, and millennia, the church uh, kind of created a weird interpretive scenario where they called it almsgiving. Almsgiving is a weird half-transliteration of this word. But it was, it was this, this situation happened because uh, Christ is referring to giving money in this situation. This word, this language refers... Uh, at least initially, the, the broadest, plainest sense is to give money. And you see this throughout uh, Matthew. You have uh, lending where the referent is money. You have, you have uh, him calling the, 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 the rich young ruler to sell his stuff and give the money to the poor, right? And throughout the New Testament, you have situations where people are giving money, sometimes to individuals, sometimes to the church to give to those individuals. But in either case, it was a pretty basic expectation that one aspect of your generosity was to give money. Um, now, we have some really great books that teach us when it's probably not a good idea to give money. Uh, for instance, When Helping Hurts. Um, there are people uh, who are in need and it may not be the best idea to give them cash. And I think there's wisdom and prudence to knowing when. But I want to warn you against an excess that I think that I've seen, which is to overcorrect and never give money to people. Um, if somebody is a brother or sister in this church is burdened by a medical bill, sure, groceries will help. But maybe the best way to help them is to write a check to them or to the hospital. Right? And, and I'm just throwing that out there because I think we need to have a biblical sense of generosity, which is, in many ways... Uh, giving of your stuff or giving of your harvest or giving of your, your home and in other ways, giving of your money or selling your stuff so you can give money. And I want you to have a, 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 a whole picture of that biblical generosity. Let it correct maybe some of the excesses we're seeing in our culture. I do not believe it's always the right thing to give money. I do not believe it's always the right thing not to give money. I think that you're going to, by the work of the Spirit, and in wisdom and prudence, find the way of generosity. Um, but I encourage you not to be um, uh, reactive. 
Okay, third, employ your brilliant imagination to the task of secret giving. We are clever creatures. And you are clever. I, I talk to you guys about what you do with your time, and you're doing really cool things with your time. Creating and, and building and working strategically. And You've been given good gifts in your mind. You can find ways to be generous so that nobody ever knows. Get clever about it. Be secret. Make it your object that nobody ever knows how generous you are. Make that your object because you're investing in the kingdom every step of the way. It also really shore up when you're doubting whether you have faith, when you're doubting whether or not you truly believe what you say you believe. If you've been every step of the way secretly faithful in a way that no one sees, well, that's just evidence upon evidence upon evidence mounting that you are investing in a kingdom that you can't see right now. And in your dark moments, you look at those investments and, and it's hard to say, well, I don't believe in the kingdom. When you've got a whole life punctuated by secret acts of faithfulness. So, think carefully. Be careful about how you give. Fourth, reflect on when you give. Past tense. Reflect on when you gave. And trace that generosity to the glory you're seeking. Think about how you give and whether or not it's public, whether or not certain people know about it, whether or not you could have avoided those people knowing about it and you didn't. This could be the work of the Spirit to show you in your heart a desire for the glory of men. Trace your actions to your idols and then bring them before the Lord. He will cleanse you. Okay, fifth. This is a very broad point, and I'm, I'm doing that on purpose. When you're weary, and when you're afraid, and when you're despairing of hope, when you're despairing of hope, remember your Father, your Father individually sees you he sees you and He knows. I can't wait. I really want to talk about next week. I really do, but I don't want to do that right now because I really want you to be able to see it in all of its fullness, but God is there and He sees you. When you're in the wilderness weeping, when you're tired, when everything seems to be falling apart and nobody seems to care, He is your Father and He is good and He sees you and He is giving you what you need. Just know that He's there. And at the end of all days, He will wipe every tear from your eye and He will give you comfort you can't even imagine right now. And if you dwell in patience, He will give you peace. Beyond comprehension, even now, Peter talks about seasons of refreshing because we serve a God who sees us in our weariness 
And he is our Father, and our Father cares about his children, and he will refresh you if you just hold fast. Hold fast and trust the God who sees. Thankless jobs are hard because they're thankless. But they're only thankless for like, in relative time, like this long. Because when Christ returns and when all things are made right, He will reward your secret faithfulness. Okay. Alright, and finally, we're going to talk a lot about this after uh, the, so this, this chapter is structured in a, in a really cool way. You have this broad statement, um, uh, don't do the right thing in front of people to be praised by them. Uh, do the right thing in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And then he talks about the right thing as far as giving, and the right thing as far as prayer, and the right thing as far as fasting. Three things that, that, that men are impressed by that we're supposed to do secretly. And then shifts his attention to the kingdom and investing in the kingdom. There is not a secret act of righteousness that will not yield dividends in the coming kingdom. Now, taking that as the foundation, if you believe that your acts will either terminate in temporary pleasure or terminate in uh, temporary praise or forever unimaginable pleasure and forever unimaginable praise, how are you going to spend your time? Let me state it another way. If you have like a, a, a broker or a financial advisor, and you come up to that financial advisor and you say, uh, I have $1,000 and I want to invest it. Can you give me my options? He says, okay, okay, bear with me. Option A, you can give me that $1,000 and in two months, I can give you $1,200. You're like, oh, okay, well, I mean, cool. Can you tell me about option B? Sure, sure. Okay, option B, you can give me that $1,000, and I don't know when, but sometime in the future, it will yield $100 trillion, right? Who doesn't invest in portfolio B? That's our situation. That's our situation. Christ has called us to do radical acts of righteousness. And then you have moments in the scriptures where Paul says, if there is no resurrection, we are above all men to be pitied. You should pity us more than all men. The only way that Paul's statement makes sense is that he is taking Christ's call to radical sacrifice, radical generosity, radical devotion seriously. He's so invested. He's so invested in Portfolio B that if it turns out that Portfolio B doesn't come together, he has nothing. 
I'm going to argue that that's the only way to invest your time as a Christian. That's the only good way to invest your time as a Christian. It's time to get aggressive. Invest aggressively. Trust the promise of reward and invest in the coming kingdom aggressively. Amen? Okay, let's pray together. Lord God, would you give us eyes enlightened to see your coming kingdom? Would you set our hearts hope in your promise? Would you renew our joy in your salvation? Would you give us Minds to comprehend your nearness so that we can do what you're asking us to do in secret. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.